Our Father, our world has a lot of chaos and a lot of confusion, just a lot of things that can unsettle us, whether we look globally, nationally, locally, or even in our own lives. A lot of things that just are not the way that you designed them to be, and a lot of things that can cause pain and hardship. And Lord, we're thankful that we can depend on you, that you're a source of hope, a source of comfort, that you're an ever-present help in times of trouble. And I pray that as we open the scripture today, that you will give us insight and wisdom in how we can live well in the midst of this challenging and chaotic world. Please give us insight and help us to apply it through your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we lift up this time in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, the book of Acts is full of drama. Over the last few weeks, we've been doing some deep dives into specific sections that maybe we don't see the drama quite as much in those sections, but the deep dives are still helpful because we've been looking at specific relevant topics such as how to finish well in the race of faith and how to deal with death. But today we're going to try not to lose the forest just because we're so focused on the individual trees, metaphorically speaking. We're going to look at a big picture view of what's been happening in Acts. We're going to zoom out and specifically, I'm going to provide us with an overview of five chapters of Acts. Five chapters. And like I said, Acts is full of action and drama. I'm convinced that if we, if we approach the book of Acts with an open mind, that we're going to get caught up in that storyline in the same way that we get caught up in a good movie or a thrilling book. So we're going to be looking today at the drama of what's taking place in Acts and how that applies for our lives so I invite you to turn in the Bible this morning to Acts chapter 24. And if you're using a Bible from the pew, Acts 24 is on page 1124. Now we're actually going to start today's five-chapter overview in Acts chapter 20. But we're going to be moving through the chapters quick enough that I think it's going to be challenging to follow along. So that's why I said turn to chapter 24. And you can actually, if you want to, even set the Bible to your side for a moment or for a few minutes, actually, um, because we're going to get to chapter 24 in a little while, but I'm going to do this overview first. Uh, but if you like taking notes, get ready, because here we go through a five-chapter overview in just a few minutes. So we're going to begin in Acts 20, when Paul traveled to Jerusalem. And he started this part of the travel in the country of Greece in 57 AD. Now, he stopped numerous times along the way to Jerusalem in part because they did not have direct flights back then. Instead, Paul would have to get on a boat, take it to a port, and then get off that boat, find another boat, go in the next port, and just kind of do that uh, just over and over until he gets to Jerusalem. And along the way, he stopped several times to visit with Christians. Now, Jerusalem was the capital of the Jewish religion. And on top of that, it was a hub for early Christianity. And one of Paul's reasons for himself going to Jerusalem was to take money there to support those who were poor. Now, in Jerusalem, Paul was put in a sticky situation in relation to the Jewish law. Right away when he got there, he met with church leaders, and he shared with them about what God was doing among the Gentiles. And it was really exciting, and the church leaders were happy. But the church leaders were also concerned about Paul. You see, Paul was a lightning rod for people with a Jewish background. Paul ministered among those who were Gentiles. Gentiles in that culture were anyone who was not a Jew, and Jews historically despised Gentiles. But Paul 
He ministered to Gentiles. He was friends with Gentiles. He was helping introduce Gentiles to God. And on top of this, making matters worse, Paul taught the Gentiles do not need to follow Jewish rules in order to follow Jesus. Now the church leaders informed Paul that thousands of Jews around Jerusalem had been turning to Jesus. Yet these Jewish Christians were very suspicious of Paul because they saw Paul as too radical, too liberal, too progressive. And rumors have been flying around Jerusalem about Paul, especially among those Jewish Christians, rumors that had a smidgen of truth, but a whole lot of exaggeration. And now that Paul was in Jerusalem in person, the church leaders knew these rumors and, and these speculations, they need to be addressed. And so the church leaders had a plan. They said to Paul that four Christian men had made a special vow to God that involved some activities in the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. And so they pretty much told Paul, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to go with these four men into the temple and pay for the rituals those men are going to go through. Pay their part of this and then accompany them through those rituals. And by doing so, Paul, the hope is that, that people will see that you actually do support the Jewish law. Now, Paul, he didn't have any qualms with this. He agreed to go through with this. And while Paul was doing so, a crowd in the temple attacked Paul and tried to kill him. It started with a group of Jews who accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple. Because a few days earlier, they had seen Paul out in the city of Jerusalem with a Gentile Christian named Trophimus. And they assumed that because Paul was friends with Trophimus, this Gentile that when Paul was in the temple, he probably brought Trophimus with him. Now, Paul didn't do that. He knew the rules of the temple. He wasn't going to break those rules. But the people started that rumor anyway. They accused Paul of this. And that's the thing, that when accusations and assumptions happen, even if they are false, once they are verbalized, those accusations and assumptions spread like wildfire and rile people up. And so in the temple, a mob formed. And they grabbed a hold of Paul and dragged him out of the temple and they began beating him. You know, punching him and kicking him. And some Roman soldiers saw this. They intervened because Romans wanted to keep the peace. The Romans, by and large, wanted law and order, especially when the law and order benefited themselves. And so the soldiers, they came where he was being beaten and they dragged Paul away. But the mob did not give up easily. Acts 21 verse 36 says that Paul was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob followed, crying out, away with him. So the mob was angry. Now amazingly, Paul kept his cool through all of this. And he got in a conversation with the Roman leader of those soldiers. And in that process of that conversation, the Romans then gave Paul an opportunity to address the crowd. And it started in kind of a funny way. First of all, Paul addressed this Roman leader in Greek, the language of the Roman Empire. The Roman leader was surprised. He didn't know Paul could speak Greek. He thought Paul was just some uneducated revolutionary guy who was riling people up. But no, in fact, Paul is highly educated. He is bilingual, at least. He at least knows two languages fluently. Also, this Roman leader mistook Paul's identity. 
He thought Paul was an Egyptian revolutionary who was leading 4,000 men called the Assassins. I mean, imagine that. You have this group called the Assassins, and this Roman leader thought that Paul was that group's leader. But that's not who Paul was. So Paul kind of straightened things out with him, but let's just think about the context back then. They did not have the technology in media that we have today that allows us to recognize people even if we've never met them. I mean, for us, we can think of politicians. If we see a picture of a foreign leader, we know what they look like. Even criminals. I mean, if you want to, with a lot of criminals, you can figure out what they look like. That's the, that's the benefit of technology and media that we have today. That Even if we haven't met someone in person, we probably can know what they look like and know a lot of information about them. Back then, it was very different. If they had never met someone, they wouldn't necessarily know who that person was, even when they were face-to-face. And so it was with this Roman leader and Paul. But Paul clarified to the leader who he is, and then he got permission to address the crowd. And he spoke to that crowd, who was the mob. He addressed them in their own Jewish language of Hebrew. And this shocked the crowd, that he was addressing them in Hebrew. And the thing is, they were angry at him, but they knew very little about him. They didn't even know basic facts about who he was. And that shows the power of propaganda and a mob mentality that people get all riled up when they may not even know the basic facts about the person or situation. And so as Paul addressed the crowd, he introduced himself. He shared who he is. He shared where he's from. He shared some other parts of his background, and he shared that that for a lot of years, he has been zealous about the Jewish law. And he shared about how he met Jesus and became a follower of Jesus, and the crowd was very interested in what he was saying. They were listening attentively until he got to the part where he shared that Jesus called him to take the gospel to Gentiles. And then Acts 22, verse 22 says, up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. So Paul was again taken away by the Romans. And this time, they were preparing to flog him with whips. See, this was a Roman way to try to get a confession out of a criminal. Now, Paul obviously was not that interested in being whipped. And so he cried out to them, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Now you have to understand that back in that culture, not everyone born in the Roman Empire was a citizen of the empire. It was actually a very high status to be a citizen, but Paul, because of the family in which he was born, was a Roman citizen from birth. And Roman citizens had rights. And one of the rights was to not be beaten just, just as interrogation. And so the Romans were all confused. They couldn't figure out what to do. And so the next day, the Romans had Paul testify in front of the Jewish high council known as the Sanhedrin to try to determine what the ruckus was all about. Now, this did not go well either. And Paul knew as he went in there, I mean, he wasn't in there according to his will, but he was forced to go in there. He knew this was not going to be a fair trial. He knew that the Sanhedrin was not going to take him seriously or listen to anything that he said. So he decided to go on the offensive a little bit, and he proclaimed to them, I am a Pharisee, which is true. 
And he said, I believe in the resurrection from the dead, which is true. But he knew these two topics of being a Pharisee and believing in the resurrection, that these were hot-button issues on the Sanhedrin. And chaos quickly broke out in the Sanhedrin. People started to get violent. And so the Romans once again took away Paul for safekeeping. Acts 23.11 reminds us that even though there's all this chaos and confusion going on, God is still in charge. Acts 23.11 says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So it was a reminder that God is still in charge. But the Jews were still raging. A group of Jews mounted a dedicated plot to kill Paul. And so the Romans transferred him to Caesarea. Acts 23, 12 says the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. And so it's a group of Jews. It says about 40, of, 40 Jewish men who said we will not eat nor drink until we kill Paul. I mean, that is serious, not eating or drinking until they make sure Paul is dead. That's how angry they are. That's how much they want to get him off the scene. Now, news of this plot got to Paul's nephew, who shared it with the Roman leader, who then arranged to have Paul transferred to a different city, out of Jerusalem, to Caesarea. And so to protect Paul, several hundred Roman soldiers took him during the night to Caesarea. I mean, so think about that. Paul was protected in that travel by hundreds of Roman soldiers. I mean, it's a lot going on, a lot of drama here. When he gets to Caesarea, Paul is questioned by Governor Felix, who oversaw that region. And a few Jewish leaders also came to Caesarea in order to testify against Paul. And now we're to Acts 24, so you can pick up your Bible if you have it open. And follow along as I read Acts 24, starting in verse 10. It says, when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, and this he's referring to Christianity, according to the way I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I also take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. And he goes on a little bit longer explaining what's happened to him. But all this raises the question as we consider all that Paul's been through. Chaos, uncertainty, being pulled this way and that, being accused. I mean, just it's been a lot of messy stuff. And it raises the question of how was Paul able to maintain confidence and calm amid such chaos and injustice? 
Now, this is a valuable question to consider, not only for understanding Paul, but even for how we live well in our lives, in our world, because our world has a lot of chaos, has a lot of animosity, has a lot of injustice. In our world, there are a lot of things that can make us mad and people who don't treat others in ideal ways. So how do we, in this type of world, not only survive, but even thrive? I think that if we can figure out how Paul did it in the midst of his difficult circumstances, that can give us insight in how we can survive and, and even thrive in our world as well. So I'm going to highlight three passages of Scripture that reveal how Paul was able to maintain confidence and calm. The first one is actually right in Acts 24 that I just read, Acts 24, verse 16. Paul says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, Paul knows that he cannot control his circumstances at this point. He knows that he can't control outcomes. So he focuses on what he can control, and that is glorifying God and loving others. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 22, it's called the greatest commandment, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So there Jesus is, is clarifying the two primary priorities his followers should have. Love and glorify God and love others. So even though Paul is not in control of his circumstances, he is focused on living out the greatest commandment of love and glorify God and love others. That's why you can say, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He's making sure that his words and his actions glorify God and love people. And this gives him a clear conscience in the midst of everything that's taking place. Now, the second passage I want to highlight continues this theme of our conscience. since in Acts 23.1, back when Paul was meeting with the Sanhedrin. Paul said there, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, we're talking about conscience. That's actually going to be a, a common thread in all three passages that I'm pointing out right now. Our conscience is kind of like a warning light on the dashboard that lights up to tell us when something is not right. That's the way a conscience should work. Now, to be sure, sometimes our conscience gets a little skewed. It might convict us when we don't need conviction, or it might just do nothing when we should be convicted of something. But for Paul, he says his conscience is clear meaning that he believes his lifestyle aligns with his priority of glorifying God. You know, a clear conscience is worth a lot. A clear conscience gives us confidence that what we are doing is right and good, regardless of the outcome or regardless of what other people around us think. Now, a third passage that continues the same type of theme is 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5. It's one of Paul's letters, and he writes there, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. I think this passage 
is key, helping to tie together those other two passages. It shows that when you are focused on pleasing and honoring God, it can give confidence and calm regardless of the circumstance. Paul here is highlighting who he's looking to as his audience in life. The reality is everyone lives with an eye towards some sort of audience. Perhaps for you, your audience is a group of friends that you want to please, you want to impress, you want to have their approval. Perhaps for you, it's a pretty girl or a handsome guy at school. Maybe for you, it's your parents that you want to please and impress most of all. Maybe it is your supervisor at work. Maybe it's, maybe it's all your contacts on social media. That they're your audience that you are trying to please. If you get their approval, you feel good. If you don't get their approval, you don't feel like you are worth all that much. Now, maybe for you, you're worried about the impression you make on practically everyone. And you're constantly fretting over what other people think of you. You know, people spend a whole lot of time and energy worrying about the, the opinions of others, of us. You know, people pleasing can be incredibly draining. And it breeds insecurity if we don't think we stack up to other people's opinions. Or it can also breed pride if we think we do stack up. On top of this, it can cause us to do things. This idea of people pleasing can cause us to do things we know we shouldn't do, but we do them anyway to try to please or impress someone else. But I think it's valuable to see who Paul's audience is. Who is he looking to for approval? Who is he trying to please? He says in 1 Corinthians 4, I care, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, he says, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul says he's not worried about what other people think. He is focused, though, on what God thinks. Now, an interesting side note is he says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. So he's recognizing the fact that our conscience can get skewed. We can have a clear conscience, feeling like we're doing what's right, when in fact we aren't at all. And so it shows our conscience can't be the only criteria we use to determine what course of action we should take, whether we're in the right or in the wrong. We should be humble and make sure that we're always trying to align our lives as much as possible with what's in Scripture and what the Gospel teaches. But again, look at Paul. He's entirely focused on honoring and pleasing God. He doesn't have a whole bunch of audiences out there that he's trying to please. He's not trying to please the Jews. He's not trying to please uh, the, the Roman leaders. He's not even really trying to focus that much on pleasing other Christians. No. He wants to love people well. His audience consists of one, if you want to say person or being, one focal point, and that is God. That is his audience. Now, you may be thinking, all this sounds really nice, but I'm not even sure if I can please God in that way. Yeah, Paul is the Apostle Paul. He's a spiritual giant, but, but I, have, I have sin in my life. I'm messed up. That's the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus knows that we all in and of ourselves are messed up, but he loves us still, and he makes a way for us to receive full forgiveness and cleansing and purifying. 
And so then we have God's stamp of approval and God welcoming us with open arms. Even though, yes, we have messed up. That's the beauty of confessing our sins to him and receiving his forgiveness as he washes us clean. I think of what was said by Counselor Larry Crabb. He wrote, Somehow we fail to grasp that God's acceptance makes everyone else's rejection no more devastating than a misplaced dollar would be to a millionaire. We foolishly believe that other people's acceptance represents a legitimate measure of our value. You know, these themes, these topics are just as relevant for us as they were for Paul. He had been able to come to a point in his life where he was so focused on glorifying and honoring and loving God and caring about what God thought that he he was not aloof from other people. He still loved people. He cared for people well. But he did not depend on the perspective of other people for his sense of worth and well-being. And that's incredibly beautiful and incredibly freeing. Now let's come back to Acts 24, see what happens next. After Paul made his case to Governor Felix, Felix became passive and didn't really make any decision in Paul's case. Let's pick up in verse 23. It says, Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So he was alarmed. So that shows that for Felix, his conscience was pricking him, but he was trying to suppress it. He didn't want to, he didn't want to deal with the truth. Now it says at the same time he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So Felix was looking for a bribe. And so he sent for Paul often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So we see that Paul is basically forgotten in jail for two more years. Shows that even if we are doing what, we seem, what seems right, we're trying to honor God, and even if we have a clear conscience and all that, there may be still things that are less than ideal, that are even bad, that happen to us. This illustrates the battle that we face in our broken world. It says that Felix left Paul in prison for two years, even after his reign was up, in order to please the Jews. Felix was a people pleaser. And this didn't honor God. It didn't put Felix in a good position. And it hurt people like Paul. Think about Paul. I mean, forgotten in prison for two years. I mean, that's hard. When you have some plan, something you want to do, and it's not working out the way you want it to, you can feel like God's forgotten you. You can feel like life's just passing you by. You can feel like it's unfair. That's part of the battle of living in this broken world. I mean, Paul certainly could have identified with that. I think Paul was able to keep his focus on God so much. He had a confidence and a calm and knew that even there in prison, he's still able to focus on honoring and loving God and loving the people that he comes into contact with. And that gave him a clear conscience and a purpose, even while he feels like he may be in that holding pattern as well, sitting in prison. And all this shows that for the Apostle Paul, he was focused 
on God. It made all the difference in the world and for us as well. No matter what circumstance we face in our life, if we can focus ourselves on loving and glorifying God and loving others well, then no matter what other circumstances we may have, we will be able to live with a clear conscience, with confidence, and with a calm. Because we know that we are doing the, the, the things that God is calling us to do. And this is part of the glorious beauty of following Jesus. So he invites each one of us to stop worrying about what other people think of us. That doesn't mean we shouldn't care at all about anything. We should still even care well for the people around us. But instead, we should have our focus on honoring and glorifying and loving God, focused on what he thinks of us. And we can know that if our faith is in Jesus, that he has full approval of us, that he loves us, and even better than any earthly father ever could, because he is our heavenly father. And so he invites us to stop worrying about all those other audiences and letting, stop letting them be a major shaping influence in our lives and make sure instead that we're focused on him as our audience of one. That can make all the difference in giving us confidence and calm and a clear conscience as we face life in a chaotic and difficult world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you open a door for us to be known and loved by a Heavenly Father who will be with us always. We thank you that you open a way for us not to have self-condemnation or condemnation from Him because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for how you worked in Paul's life, supporting him, transforming him, to give him as an example of confidence and calm in the midst of a chaotic world. Lord, in the midst of our own battles and our own chaos, help us to cling to you, to turn our eyes to you, be able to keep things in proper perspective, and to really love you and love others well. And to do so with a clear conscience as we align our lifestyle with what our stated priorities are of loving you and loving others. So please, Lord, help us to depend on you. And I pray that you will be fighting the battles for us and that we will find confidence and calm in you through that process. We pray these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. <laughs>